All right, we're going to spend some time studying the Bible together. So thank you again for joining us online. We really appreciate it. We know, again, as, as Kendrick's already said, this is odd. This is not normal. Um, but we're thankful that we still can do this because of this technology. And we're thankful that we have God's Word. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we spend time every week studying it, opening it up to see Jesus more clearly. So if you have a Bible at home, I'd encourage you to grab it and open it up to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then the big book of Acts, then the big book of Romans, and then you've got 1 Corinthians. So it's in the beginning section of our New Testament in the Bible. We're in a series right now called True Unity. And in the series, True Unity, we're looking, focusing in on the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And there's this big emphasis that Paul is laying on where we find true unity. And that is in Christ himself and the preaching of the cross in what God has done for us. And it's human nature to take pride in ourselves and our differences. And so that pride is the problem. And that's what we're calling the sermon title this week, Pride is Our Problem. So we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, through chapter 2, verse 5. So kind of the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2. And we're calling it Pride is Our Problem. And, and it's interesting to see this unfold on social media and in the news. More and more people are divided. We were already a divided people nationally. Paul is speaking to problems that take place in the church. It's the same human problem that takes place everywhere you go. If you've ever been a part of a club, if you've ever been a part of a church, if you've ever been a part of any organization, division comes in because human beings take pride in ourselves and what we can do. And we find our identity in ourselves instead of in who God is and what he's made us to be. And so one of the famous mythological stories that shows how pride can go wrong is the story of Narcissus. Have you ever heard of someone that was a narcissist? Well, that idea of being a narcissist, being obsessed with yourself, having too much pride, that's, that's named after this character, Narcissus. And Narcissus was punished by a God who recognized that he was too obsessed with himself. And so Narcissus was led to a clear reflective pool where Narcissus, who was very handsome, very beautiful, saw his own reflection. And that became a snare to him. So here's how Narcissus died. He couldn't stop looking at himself. Narcissus thought he was so awesome and so beautiful. He actually starved to death because he couldn't break his gaze. He couldn't break his stare at his own reflection. And that's, a, that's an image, that's an illustration of what happens to us when we look to ourselves for our identity. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through 2, 5. Pride is our problem. Starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the wisdom, uh, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you teach us. I pray for myself. I pray for everybody listening, that you would help us to hear from your voice through your word, that you'd help it to be clear. You'd take away distractions, that we would see you in these pages. We pray your spirit would empower us to no longer take pride in ourselves, but to take hope in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So pride is the problem. Pride is what drives division. Unity comes from humility, right? So humility and pride are opposites. And when you're humble and you put others before yourselves, then you can actually be unified with other people. But when you're proud, that forces you to separate. That forces you to say, I'm better than that person. I'm different from that person. It it forces you to raise the differences and make the differences more important. And so as we move through the text, Paul is going to bring out the way that God's grace humbles us, the way that God's grace defeats our pride in three ways. We'll, we'll run through this in three different ways. Number one, God's choosing versus our pride, boasting versus our pride, and then finally, spiritual power versus our pride. So these are three things that are going to push back against pride, which God uses, again, graciously in his kindness to humble us to help us to love and serve others. So the first one is God's choosing versus pride. Paul points this out. It's very strong, strong repetition in the text here. If we look at verses 26 through uh, 28, God's choosing defeats our pride. So starting again in verse 26, we're going to see this repetition. Listen for this as I reread these three little verses. You're going to hear the repetition of God chose, God chose, God chose. So now you know why I chose God's choosing as my main topic here, right? God chose, God chose, God chose. That humbles us. That defeats our pride. So in verse 26, he says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So when he says, consider your calling, he's saying, remember when God called you. So in the Bible, calling doesn't always mean vocation, what we do for a living, which is how we often use it. That's kind of like a second, third order effect of God's work in your life, right? But the first order effect of calling is God calls you to himself in Christ. So the moment you saw that Jesus was good and that he died for you on the cross and that he gave his life for you, the moment that you really saw that, believed and trusted in him, that was the moment that God was calling you into his family. So Paul's saying, remember when he called you? He didn't call you because you were awesome. You weren't like wise and noble and fantastic and impressive. Consider your calling. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Verse 27, but God chose. Here's the first time he says it. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And then he says it again. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Once again, now in verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God chose, God chose, God chose. Now this introduces a problem doctrine. This is a doctrine that believers have been fighting about for thousands of years. So I just want to assure you, I'm by no means going to settle this. But I do think we see here a pastoral blessing that comes from God's choosing. 
So instead of getting off, you know, confused about how, how we can reconcile it all philosophically, which is a fine question to pursue, we need to say, is that the question he's asking here, right? So just to set it up, the idea that God would choose people to save them, that he'd interview, intervene in human history, sometimes the word in the Bible is predestination, sometimes the word is election or choosing like it is here. That idea can be offensive to us because it makes it seem like, well, if God's doing that, how can we be responsible actors, right? Doesn't that automatically mean we're robots? And I would just say the Bible presses that God is completely sovereign and chooses and humans are completely responsible for their actions. So the Bible lays both of those out and it doesn't really reconcile it for us. So I admit, yeah, there's a tension there and we hope to have that tension solved in heaven. I don't think I can solve that tension for you now. What I wanna do is I wanna direct your attention to what benefit God's choosing brings us. And here we see the benefit of God's choosing humbling the proud. That's a benefit, right? Because if we're, if we're proud, we're going to die. We're going to bring judgment upon ourselves. So he humbles the proud. That's part of what God's choosing does. But it also blesses outsiders. And so this is a rhythm you see every time election or predestination is brought up in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 9, the question comes up like, well, how does this all work? Romans 9 explains it, kind of coming at it from the angle of this humbles those who think they're saved based on their pride. It humbles them. And it's a blessing to outsiders. God adopts and chooses those that are not wonderful or noble or kind or whatever. God chooses them in his love and grace, not because they deserve it. See the same thing in Ephesians chapter one. It's another key passage in the New Testament that teaches on God's choosing and God's election. There in Ephesians one, the emphasis is on the other side. It's more about God blessing the outsiders. The church in Ephesus had to be encouraged that even though you weren't born Jews, you're still a part of God's family and God's blessing you and God put his love on you. And there's this kind of fatherly adoption language there. So the idea is that we're like this grubby orphan. I I found a, a picture of a poor child on a trash heap. And Paul is saying, remember your calling? Remember when you first met Jesus? This is who you were. You were like uh, struggling to survive on a trash heap. And God picked you up and cleaned you up. And he started feeding you and adopting you and putting you in his family and loving you. You were an orphan. You were isolated. You were alone in your pride and in your sin. But God found you and chose you because he loves you. It's based on his love. And so this is a great reassurance here. He's like, you're not wise. You weren't powerful. You didn't have noble birth. Noble birth means you didn't come from the right family, but God showed grace to you in Christ. And so I think what this does is this causes us to, number one, question our calling. Is your calling story, or let's say it in the way we normally talk about it, your come to Jesus story or your faith story? Is your faith story about you and how awesome you are and how you got your stuff together? Or is your faith story about a God who showed grace to you when you didn't deserve it? And I would encourage you to re-examine your story because there are a lot of people who have put faith in their own religiousness, but they never actually have put faith in God and what he's done for us in Christ. Here, Paul is saying, hey, part of this pride problem is, is you might be putting your faith in the wrong thing. Remember how this works? Remember you were a sinner and God saved you. Remember you were an outsider and God chose you. You were all alone and he adopted you into his family. So think through how you tell your story, how you think of your story. Do you have a little bit of pride that may be creeping into your story of, and then I got my life together (laughs) and everything's better now? Or 
Is it a real deep sense of God's kindness being shown to you, his grace being given to you? Do you understand what God has done for you? That's how God's choosing can defeat our pride and humble us. When we focus on our own status and our own accomplishment and our own achievement, that divides us. Um, Another thing that I think would be helpful as we're trying to apply this is re-examine your identity. How do you think about who you are? Do you think about your identity in context of all the bad things you've ever done? Or do you think about your identity in context of all the great things you've accomplished? What are your gifts? What are your deficits? And are you focusing on those exclusively as your identity? Or are you focusing on, no, my identity is I'm an adopted child of God. And then God's going to help me clean up those problems in my life. And God's going to help me use the gifts and the strengths I have for his glory. Our gifts and our weaknesses have to be secondary. They can't be our primary identity. Of course, we don't deny that they're there. They're there, right? We all have secondary, third kind of identities, things that mark us, things that kind of make us unique. But that shouldn't be the primary foundation for our identity and how we see ourselves. Our primary identity needs to be, we have this loving heavenly father who loved me and chose me, picked me out, made me his own. A great book that talks about this is Tim Keller's book on self-forgetfulness. And in Tim Keller's book on self-forgetfulness, which we'll talk about again later on in the series, because he's basically teaching on 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4 in that book. But in that book on self-forgetfulness, he references C.S. Lewis. So another great book is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. It has a chapter on pride. And Lewis says, the problem is, is not that we would think less about, or the solution it's not that we would think less of ourselves, right? The, the, the solution is not to say, you're bad, you're terrible. The solution is just to stop thinking about yourself, right? <laughs> Start actually thinking about others. And the way God does that is he makes our, our minds just taken up with him. One last application and we'll move on to the next point. And it's this. Examine your language in public. Is your language in public something that points to God and his greatness and his gracious act on your behalf? Or is your language in public, let me say it another way, your language on social media, is it all about you? Is it about your righteousness? Is it about your accomplishments? Is it about your gifts? Or even is it about your weaknesses? I've said this many times before, when we focus exclusively on our weaknesses, that's, that's another form of pride. That's what Lewis was talking about. Stop looking at yourself, good or bad. Just start looking out at others. So examine how you post on social media. Examine how you talk to people out in public and filter it and say, am I talking more about God? Am I pointing to him or am I pointing to me? So God's choosing defeats our pride. The next point is that boasting is something that comes against our pride. And this is kind of an interesting little uh, trick word here because he's using boasting positively and negatively, right? So when you look in the text in verses 29 through 31, you'll see Paul using a a positive word for boasting and a negative word for boasting. So we have to understand it in in context. So uh, boasting, right, if it's the wrong kind, makes our pride worse. But if it's the right kind of boasting, it actually makes our pride better. It humbles us. So look at verse 29. In verse 29, it says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So he's picking up where he was before with God's choosing. He says, God chose the lowly, the weak, the not strong to shame the strong. And then now in verse 29, so that no human being can boast before God. What that means is no human being comes to the judgment day or the judgment seat and says, God, I'm great. You have to accept me. No human being can do that, right? Because we're only saved by his grace 
through the cross of Jesus Christ. So he says, so that no human being can boast, that's the wrong kind of boasting, the prideful kind of boasting in ourselves, verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He's like, okay, and here's where it turns. So you go from human boasting, I'm great, I'm awesome, look at me. He says, that's not how you're gonna be saved. You have to be in Christ Jesus. So we say, put our faith or our trust in Christ Jesus, and then we are contained in him. We're hidden in him. We have union with Christ. When God looks at someone who has faith in Christ, he sees them as hidden in Christ's righteousness. He sees you as beautiful. He sees you as righteous, as delightful. He likes you, right? Think about that. You might think, well, God has to forgive me because of the cross, but he doesn't like me. No, in Christ, he likes you. He's pleased with you. That's what we are seeing in verse 30. Because of him, because of God's kindness and choosing and grace to us, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All those salvation words, we have those because we're in Christ Jesus by faith. Verse 31, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So that's the good kind of boasting. That's the kind of boasting that defeats our pride. Do you have that kind of boasting? This is then an application. Do you boast in the Lord? Do you boast in Christ and what he's done for you? Do you boast in the cross, the accomplishments of Jesus? Or do you boast in yourself? Do you boast in belonging to the right club, belonging to the right church, doing the right things, following your own heart? What are you tempted to boast in? What are you tempted to talk about on social media? Do you boast in how just and right you are? Here's one for the coronavirus. Do you boast in how obedient you are to CDC instructions? Or do you boast in how disobedient you are because you're a cynic and you know it's all a conspiracy, right? I mean, we got boasting on both sides here. What if we boasted in Christ Jesus? That might give us an ability to be humble and not even have to really pick a side, but just walk in wisdom and obedience to him. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. I grabbed a picture online of a, of a toddler scowling, right? Have you ever been in the situation where someone really small and insignificant was trying to intimidate you? I think all parents have been in that situation before. Um, so this is an example of that with the picture of the little toddler scowling, trying to look scary. Um, that's kind of what it's like when we boast before God. We're sinners, we're, we're filthy, we're disobedient. None of us have loved others like we should. None of us have, have lived righteously. None of us serve others and give of ourselves the way God designed us to. And yet we wanna boast in the right action or how just we are or how much smarter we are than the other people. God says, don't boast in yourself. Look to Christ Jesus. Boast in the Lord. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. And so Biblically, when you look at how the word boasting is used throughout the scriptures, we would call it worship when you look at boasting in the Lord. Boasting in the Lord is praising God and saying, God is good. God is my salvation. He's my redemption. He's my sanctification. I have all this in Jesus Christ. And that discipline in the Christian life of doing this over and over again, making it a habit, we call that worship. So the most unified way we do that is singing together in church, right? But we also study the scriptures. There are individual ways we can do that. You can sing on your own. You can praise God. You can keep a journal of thanks, right? So think about ways that you can make worship, boasting in God, a discipline in your life. What are some ways you can do that? Number one, um, worshiping with saints. Right now we're doing it online. 
Hopefully soon we'll be able to do it again in in-person ways as the coronavirus gets pushed back. But worshiping in song is a discipline, right? And this gets really confusing for us because, again, sometimes we think music is something you wait to feel. No, it's something you do on purpose if you're a Christian. You say, I choose to sing these words about Jesus being my sanctification, my righteousness, and my redemption. I'm going to purpose to do this. Even if I can't sing well, or even if I don't like the music, it's a discipline to help me push back pride in my own heart so I can honor God. Another way, I mentioned this already, um, in the Old Testament, they use this word Ebenezer. It's in some of our old old hymns. And Ebenezer in the Old Testament was like stacking stones, making a memorial to remind yourself of a great thing God did. So what are ways you can do that as a discipline? Stack a metaphorical Ebenezer in your life. uh, Mark some kind of remembrance so that you're boasting in what God has done for you. A journal is really helpful for that. Writing down things that God did, just keeping lists of things you can be thankful for. Some of you are party people. I'm not much of a, like a ritual ceremony person, but for some of you, you're totally into that. Have ceremonies, have celebrations, make toasts, gather people, right? Again, we can't gather right now. We're kind of dreaming about what our life could be like again, hopefully soon. But you get people together and you publicly celebrate, right? Um, what are some other ways that we can boast in God? You could make art. Uh, I think the Mundell kids made some beautiful art last week watching, uh, watching the service online. I got to see that digitally through email. It was gorgeous. You can make art pieces that remind you of God's faithfulness, right? You can paint or color or draw things. Finally, coming back to just uh, Christian worship through song, you can worship at home, right? This is probably one of the best things that's coming out of this um, worshiping at home by watching the gathering online is people are learning that it's good and beautiful and fun to worship at home. Something we did on and off with our kids growing up. We never had like one set standard that we did for 20 years for their whole life, but we tried different things. Um, And I want to encourage you in two ways. Number one, it's always awkward, okay? I'm a professional ministry leader and it was still always awkward. I was a children's pastor, a youth pastor, a grown-up pastor, but it still just felt weird to worship at home. But it's worth it because it's a discipline boasting in God, saying we're going to purposefully boast in God. So whether you're just single and have a couple of roommates or whether you're married without kids or maybe you're a family with children, just say, hey, let's, let's read some scripture. Let's pray together and let's sing a song. It's as simple as that. Read, pray, sing. I really encourage you to begin building those habits. And here's another thing I want to encourage you with. It's awkward. Yes, here's the other thing. It's easy. Read, pray, sing. Here's the other thing. It doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to like do it seven days a week for it to count or one day a week at the same time. You can try it and then you forget and then you try it again. Just keep implementing these things in your life and it can become a discipline where you're pushing back pride by boasting in God. The last thing I want us to look at now is how spiritual power, spiritual power comes against our pride. So we've got this last section of spiritual power versus pride and we're gonna look at verses one through five of chapter two. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We talked about this a little bit before. Paul certainly did speak well. 
Paul certainly did speak um, using the training he was given, classical wisdom, persuasion, all of those things. What he's saying is his hope didn't rest in that. There was a kind of over-the-top obsession with that in the first century, but especially in Corinth, of being slick, of being flashy, of being persuasive in a very artistic way. And Paul's like, I didn't, I didn't rest my hope in that kind of persuasion. I tried to be clear. And he says, situationally, he was there with much fear and trembling. He's saying, you didn't believe because I was so slick. Do you remember? I was actually in a, in a bad way when I first came and preached to you. I was not doing well. I was struggling and I didn't put my hope in how smooth and wonderful and syrupy and sweet my words were. I put my hope in the cross. Key word here is he says, I decided, verse two, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, what does Paul mean here? We often talk about Christ-centered preaching or gospel-centered preaching is what we try to do here in this church and throughout all of our Sunday schools and Bible studies. What that means is this verse, chapter two, verse two is saying, I knew nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Although throughout this book, he's gonna talk about other things, right? He's gonna talk about ways we need to obey Jesus. He's saying it's all built on this foundation. I knew nothing in the sense of this is the most important thing. Do we get to talk about other things? Can we read other Bible stories? Can we talk about the requirements that the law makes on us? Yeah, we can talk about those things, but it all has to be founded and built upon what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. So here's where what we see is a church that always centers everything on the gospel and on Jesus Christ is also a church who's depending on the spiritual power. God works through the preaching of the gospel. God's spirit joins the preaching of his gospel to enliven us, to give us hope. And we often see this as we suffer. I don't know if you found this in your own life, but I know I found this to be true in my life, what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He talks about this in the book of Philippians, that as we suffer and continue to trust in Jesus, there's a special sense in which we feel, sense, and know the resurrection power of Jesus working through us, that unique spiritual power. So we're relying on his spiritual power rather than our own flesh. Again, it doesn't mean we throw away our gifts. It doesn't mean we don't try. It just means ultimately we're giving everything back to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm trusting in you and what you've done. I'm trusting in what he called last week, the foolishness of the cross. I'm not trusting in my wisdom or my plausible words. So the subject he's talking about here is, is the proclaiming, the preaching, right? He, he uses these key words throughout the section, proclaiming, testimony, speech, wisdom, knowledge, speech, message, words, right? So he's talking about his speech to them, but this can actually be applied to anything that we do in service to other people, right? Um, So this idea of depending on the spiritual power of God instead of depending on ourselves is is a thread that should go through everything else that we do. So he said, I didn't know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then the opposite of that is, I was in much weakness, fear, and trembling, right? So he's saying, I was physically weak and trusting instead in the message of the cross. I grabbed a picture of some clay pots. Um, This is a image that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians, his next letter that we have to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What does that mean? It means God is pleased 
to work through weak people like you and like me. He doesn't work through us because we're so strong. He works through us because it pleases him, because he's a God of grace and abundance. And so we are cracked, dirty clay pots with the treasure of Jesus flowing through us. That is depending on spiritual power. A lot of times Christians today think spiritual power is all about flashy displays of supernaturalism. The most supernatural Holy Spirit thing you can do is to depend on Christ in your weakness and to step out in faith to serve others. That's a miracle. This other supernatural miracle that takes place is people hear the gospel and they then entrust themselves to Jesus. That is spirit-led, spirit-dependent, spiritual power at work. So don't get distracted. Can God do miraculous things? Sure, but that's not really the main thing. When you look at the New Testament, the main thing is not flashy displays of the Holy Spirit. The main thing is obedience and trusting in Jesus. People learning to lean on him in their weakness, in in their frail flesh. So again, Paul's talking primarily about speaking, but in other places, he spins this out to talk about everything we do in the Christian life. In Romans chapter 12, if you read through the first half of Romans chapter 12, he uses this to say, man, any gift you do, use that gift in dependence on God's grace. Use that gift with faith in Jesus. And that's what the spiritual life, that's what spiritual worship looks like. Peter says it also in 1 Peter um, chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. He says, if you have a gift, whatever gift you have, you use it for God by his grace. And then he singles out specifically speaking gifts and serving gifts. He's like, if you speak, speak as if it's God's words, not yours. What is he saying there? He's saying, don't depend on your own flesh. Do we have flesh? Yeah, that's the clay pot we have. But we recognize that the treasure is separate from our clay pot. The treasure is Jesus. The treasure is the Holy Spirit working through us. So speak as if it's God's words. And then he says, if you serve, serve with God's strength. The opposite of that is when we speak our own words or when we serve in our own strength. He's saying real spiritual power takes place when we speak up or when we step out to serve others, trusting that God will use it. Even though we're like, man, I don't know. I don't know if I, don't know if I got this figured out. I don't know if I can do this. So Every Christian should speak at some level, right? We're not all gifted speakers. That doesn't mean everyone should be a, a preacher or a professor or a Sunday school teacher, but we all should speak up. And Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 3.15. We should all be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have within us, to give a defense, a basic clarity of why do you have hope in Jesus even though life is so hard? Well, I have hope in Jesus because of what he's done for me. I have hope in God because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He came after me. He chose me. He loved me. He adopted me. So every Christian should have some level of speaking, but we also have other gifts that we use. We should use those gifts in submission to Jesus. Um, I want us to wrap up here thinking about how pride is our problem. I started with the illustration of Narcissus. Narcissus is the mythological character who died literally by being obsessed with his own beauty, by being obsessed with his own reflection. And so I want us to think about this. When, when you look for solutions in life, are you staring at yourself? Maybe you're not staring at yourself. Maybe you're staring at some other external standard, some other law, some system of righteousness outside of yourself. What the Bible calls on us to do is to stare into the face of God, specifically, even more specifically, staring into the face of Jesus. In that same section where Paul talks about jars of clay, he goes on to talk about this 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says this, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He's saying, as we with unveiled faces look at the Lord, we're being transformed. Look to God, don't look at your own reflection. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Pride is our problem. Pride is what's separating us out in the world, but also in the church. Don't make your identity, don't make your righteousness based on what you've done. Make it based on, and what God has done. Stop looking at your own reflection, but see the beauty of Jesus. Look to Jesus, and you'll become someone who is truly humble, someone who can truly serve and love others. Thank you. We're going to sing one more time, and I'm going to pray for us while Helen and Karis are getting back in their spot. Father, we thank you that you give us grace in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit moving through the teaching of your word, but also moving through our own weakness. And so God, help us to trust in you, not to glory in our weakness, but to glory in you, knowing that you use us despite our weakness, knowing that you teach us to depend on you by spiritual power. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.